Welcome to the Global River Church Discipleship Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. So this past fall, Ron and I went to the Voice of the Apostles, and it was really awesome. And one of the things the Lord was speaking to me about was grace. And I was kind of like, well, I know what grace is, but the Lord's like, you've only just scratched the surface of how amazing my grace is. So I wrote a few things about grace in my journal while I was there. So grace is an unmerited divine assistance given to regenerate, to sanctify, to inspire, to impart strength. It's the condition of being in God's favor, blessing, one of the elect. It is a gift to receive and then give to others. Grace is the most powerful force in the universe and the most beautiful word. It reaches you where you are and takes you where God wants you to be. It has the power to do something nothing else can do. Transform you at the core of who you are, your heart. God's grace intervenes to give us the ability to do what we're called to do, but what we could never do on our own. Hebrews 13.9 says, It is good that the heart be established by grace. Joseph Prince writes, when you think that breakthroughs depend on your abilities to obey God, then your heart will not be at rest. It will be filled with worry. Why? Because no one can obey God perfectly. But when you depend on God's grace, the opposite happens. Your heart becomes established. Because of his grace, you have full access to his blessing. Your part is only to believe and receive. And the Lord reminded me of one time I went rollerblading at Wrightsville Beach. They have that loop that goes over the bridge and goes around and back over the bridge and back to the park. So I'm out there, and I'm just like, like, it was hard. And I was just like doing my legs and pumping my arms. But I'm determined. I'm going to go all the way around. And so this man is jogging, and he's coming this way. I'm going that way. And as he's going by, he's like, it's really hard when you're going against the wind. And he keeps going. And I was like, what did he mean by that? Could it really make that much difference? You know? So I just kept going. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try it. And I turned. As soon as I turned, the wind hit my back. And I didn't have to move my arms or my legs at all, and it's almost like, whoa, I'm going too fast. So that's the difference of what it feels like when you're trying to do it and when God's grace is helping you do something. He also told me he wanted me to read the book of Luke, and so I came across this, Grace Through the Eyes of Jesus by Paul E. Miller, and it's a Bible study on Luke. So I was like, oh, I think I'm supposed to read this. So it has about the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son and different things like that. And the first one is the woman with the alabaster jar. And so I got stuck there because I was just like, I want to learn more. I want to dig deeper and find out more. Um, So I just started reading other things and digging deeper, and I got really inspired and learned a few things, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to share them and to call it alabaster heart, the concept being that instead of bringing a jar that you break open, we bring our heart to the Lord, and we break open our heart, and we pour out our love to Him. And I felt like I got many confirmations to this, One was I came across a song, and the song's name was Alabaster Heart. And when I listened to it, I got a vision for a dance that we're going to do on Resurrection Sunday. So that was one confirmation. And then when I was reading in Luke 3.3, it says, John went preaching and baptizing throughout the Jordan Valley. He persuaded people to turn away from their sins and turn to God for the freedom of forgiveness. And then the note says, this is the definition of repentance. It has two concepts, turning away from sin and turning to God. 
for freedom. They are linked together as one word, translated as repentance, and the Aramaic word has the concept of returning to God or to unite with unity. So John's message was revolutionary. He told the people that forgiveness of sin was a heart issue, not to be temporarily gained through animal sacrifice and the corrupt religious system of the day. And it says, repentance or breaking open the heart is more important than religious acts. Repentance breaks open the heart and changes our attitude to God. And then one of the things I came across is, uh, it was an article by Paul J. Bucknell, and I just wanted to read a little excerpt from it because I thought it kind of summed it up really good. After pondering this story from Mark 14, my heart was moved to give to my Lord whatever he wanted in my life. I was thinking of the most valuable treasures I had, my money, my van, my house, my family. Actually, in the past, I had given these things one by one to the Lord, all that I have and am including my life, reputation, wife, children, wealth, possessions. I've given them all to him. Then in a sense of quiet joy, I dedicated the most precious thing to him, my heart. He is my all in all. I have nothing that is mine. All is his. So an alabaster heart is a childlike heart. Luke 18, 17 says, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of heaven like a child will not enter it. An alabaster heart is a listening heart. In Luke 8, Jesus says, listen with your heart and then you'll understand. So there's a difference between hearing with your ear and listening with your heart. Luke 8:18. 8, this is from the Passion Bible. It says, "So pay careful attention to your hearts as you hear my teaching." This is Jesus speaking. For to those who have open hearts, even more revelation will be given to them until it overflows. And for those who do not listen with open hearts, what little they imagine to have will be taken away. So faith is what we believe with our heart. And once we believe something with our heart, nothing and no one can talk us out of it, as opposed to mental assent, which we can be talked out of as illustrated in the parable of the sower, Mark, Matthew 13. So I have this actually on my phone because it was sent by Ron. It was one of the Bill Johnson devotionals that he sends out in the morning. And I thought it was really good. So a fundamental lesson for us in this historic fact is that even a church in revival known for great teaching and citywide impact needs more revelation. It's not automatic to say the Spirit of God is welcome here and free to do as he pleases is not enough. Many of the things we need and long for must be prayed for specifically and pursued relentlessly. Such is the case with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Only when wisdom and revelation are passionately pursued do they take the place they deserve in the Christian life. And then this is from the Amplified Bible, the prayer from Ephesians 1. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may grant you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation that gives you a deep and personal and intimate insight into the true knowledge of him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart, the very center and core of your being, may be enlightened, flooded with light by the Holy Spirit, so that you will know and cherish the hope, the divine guarantee, the confident expectation to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you will begin to know what the immeasurable, unlimited, surpassing greatness of his active spiritual power is in us who believe. 
These are in accordance with the working of his mighty strength, which he produced in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, whether angelic or human, and far above every name that is named, above every title that can be confirmed, and not only in this age in the world, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in every realm and subjugation under Christ's feet and appointed him as supreme and authoritative head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills and completes all things in all. So an alabaster heart is a yielded heart. In Song of Songs, Chapter 1, verse 2, it says, let him kiss me. And the note says, to enter in the doorway of Jesus' heart, we must begin by saying, let him. All we need to do is bring him a yielded heart and let him do the rest. God's loving grace means that he will be enough for us. We can let him be everything to us. We don't begin by doing, we begin by yielding. The Hebrew word for kiss is neshak, which also means to equip or to arm for battle. So we need his kisses to become equipped warriors for him. And then I had a section of notes about trust, and I was like, do I really need to keep this in here? And so I was praying about it. And then on Wednesday, February 17th, at intercession, Pastor Tom started off with, does anybody have anything on their heart? And Daisy read from Psalm 40. And then a little bit later, Tony read all of Psalm 40 and prayed into Psalm 40. And then a little bit later, Doug Henry had uh, communion, and he's like, the Lord told me Psalm 40, but since it's been read a couple of times, I'll just read the commentary. Well, in my Bible, like one of my Bibles, I have an Inspire Bible that has a journaling and place to color on the sides, and I had in big letters, trust. And part of Psalm 40 says to wait patiently on the Lord, and this is during the hard times. And I think it's impossible to wait patiently on the Lord if you don't trust him. You can for a certain amount of time, but after a while you go into discouragement, disappointment, doubt, you'd want to give up, maybe strive, make it happen on your own. So it's impossible to wait patiently on the Lord without trust. And it also says sing a new song, praise and worship, also during the hard times. And I think that you cannot really do that unless you trust the Lord. You can't worship from your heart. So worship is more than just singing words or playing an instrument, waving a flag. Worship happens from your heart. And sometimes when you're going through a hard time, you have to be like David. And you have to tell yourself, I will, soul, you will praise the Lord. You will worship the Lord, and you start thanking the Lord, you enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise, and then you feel his presence, but it starts when your heart knows that you trust him, and you're going to worship anyway through it, and that's when usually the miracles happen, the breakthroughs happen, the answer prayers happen, and so trust is very important. In Song of Songs 4.8, Jesus says to his beloved, Now you are ready to come with me as we climb the highest peaks together. Come with me through the archway of trust. We look down from the mountain peak, and together we will wage war. So I feel like you cannot truly engage in spiritual warfare and have the victory unless you trust in God's character, his power, his promises, his word, and you have a relationship with him. So the demons know if you have a relationship with him or not. <laughs> The sons of Sceva found out the hard way. In Acts 19.15, the demon and the man they were trying to do an exorcism on said, I know about Jesus, I recognize Paul, but who do you think you are? So true authority comes from relationship with Jesus Christ, 
not just using formulas and techniques. The evil spirits know the depth of your relationship. And I know around me, when demons manifest, they always say, the bride of Christ. And I was remembering the first time that it ever happened to me. It was, it was back when it was the vineyard, and Pastor Tom was assistant pastor at the time. And I'd only been saved like less than two years, and this was at the point, this was before we even did mission trips, so we really didn't talk about the prophetic or spiritual realm things or anything, but I was walking in from that door back there, and this lady, I saw her, and she was jerking and and contorting and things, and it's like, I don't think I'd even heard the word demonic manifestation before, but I knew in my spirit that's what was happening. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to act like I don't know anything's happening and just say hi. And walk by. So, But she came up to me, and she's like, you're the bride of Christ. And I was, I was in shock because the Lord had just started telling me about being the bride, and it was new and fresh, and it was like something I hadn't shared with anybody. So it was all, it felt like, like my heart was open and could be seen, but she, so I was like, <gasps> like that, and she said, oh yeah, we know who you are. <laughs> so they know even when we don't even, heart, like when other people don't know or when we're not fully embraced in it. And I still feel that way. Even after all these years, I still know there's more that, because I've been in places and I can feel the kingdom of heaven around me and actually see it manifest, you know, through different good ways, you know, like healings or have a word for somebody or something. But I believe we can walk in that 24-7. That's my goal, and it's what I believe that we can do. And I believe it's coming. I truly do. So trust is the firm belief and reliance on the character, reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. And trust in a relationship is so important. It's the lack of trust is the main reason most relationships fall apart. And when you trust somebody in a relationship, you know that they love you, you know that they are going to think the best of you, and they're going to, you can trust them, you can rely on them, and you feel safe with them. And that's the way that God wants us to feel around him. And the only way you can build trust is by over time connecting with someone and spending time with someone and being with them and trusting who he is, that he is good all the time. He's faithful. He's almighty. Nothing's impossible for him. And to know that he cares about you personally and to be humble, to know that he knows what's best and when to bring it and how to bring it to pass. So you have to trust him over symptoms, circumstances, time frames, even logic. To not trust in God, you actually shut the door on answer prayer, healing, receiving, growing, maturing, provision, obedience, blessing, grace, empowerment, and anointing. So if you're experiencing a delay in answer prayer, you feel like you're striving, feel disappointment, hopelessness, fear, or worry, or you're stagnated or not having a breakthrough, it may be because your heart doesn't truly believe. So when you truly believe in your heart, you will experience peace and joy and thankfulness like a little child. <laughs> so it's also important that God be able to trust us and that other people be able to trust us. So Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So the English, old English concept of heart is the ruling center. It's where your will, your thoughts, your mind's affections are. So it's the control center of your life. And all means all. So you're not just pouring out a little bit of the oil. You're breaking the box. No holding back, nothing left. And we give him the rightful place of the throne in our lives, and he is the king of our heart. 
So an alabaster heart is a worshiping heart. True worship is given from the human spirit by the power of Holy Spirit and in the knowledge of the truth. True worship is preoccupied with Jesus, not so much what he can do for us, but what we can do for him, to minister to him and to desire his presence. True worship is a lifestyle. True worship involves the heart, so it has emotions. And you can come to a worship service and leave the same way. But you can't come and worship Jesus and leave unchanged. <laughs> True worship is not easily hindered. So the week of March 9th, my awesome husband and I went on our 20th anniversary to the Outer Banks. We stayed in a house on the beach in Duck, and one of the highlights of it for me was to wake up early in the morning and go sit out on the deck and watch the sunrise. And so it was like, it was, I loved it because it would start like at 5.30 in the morning and the colors would just change and change and change and dolphins swimming by and uh, the sound of the waves and it was like so wonderful. But I would wake up even earlier so I could go and read my Bible before I went out there. So one morning I woke up and I was reading in Song of Songs and it says, Sitting under his grace shadow, I blossom in his shade. And I was like, ah, Selah. And I could just feel this big wing come over me. And it was like a, a wing of grace. And when it came over, I could just feel his, pre I could just talking about it, <laughs> I can feel it. And I could feel him all around me and inside of me. And it was so strong. I could barely get up to go out on the deck, but I did. <laughs> but, uh, it felt like I was just flooded with light. But I gotta take a little segue first before I finish that about what happened this morning. So this morning when I woke up, I'm like, I'm going to be intentional and focus on the Lord so I don't think about standing up here tonight and get nervous. So I was like, you know, I just started praying. Lord, I just want to have a pure heart of worship for you, a pure alabaster heart for you. So one of the first things I do is get my vitamins out. I have them in a drawer. So I pulled open the drawer, and there was a bookmark in the drawer that I don't remember putting in there. I don't remember ever having before, but had the word pure and a heart on it. So I was like, oh, Lord, thank you. <laughs> so I go into the living room, and... If it's too cold to be outside, I'll sit. I got a special place to sit at, and I got this little, it's like a jar that has a light in it, and on top you put a little candle thing that melts. So it gives off a little light and the beautiful aroma. And so I, I, my son and my daughter-in-law gave it to me for Mother's Day years ago. So every morning I use this. And so I was like, when I sat down, I was like, oh, I want to get under the wing again. And I turned that on, and it must have been turned a different way than it ever had been before. Because I looked up, and on the ceiling, there was a butterfly on the front part of it, and the light goes by it. But the wings of the butterfly were up on the ceiling, but they were all over. It was like these wings were all over the ceiling and all over the top of the walls. And I was like, wow. It was like just being like angels all over. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. And I even counted them to see how many there were. And there were 17, which was the same amount that of angels that we saw when we did Taking Back the Land on the beach. And we danced on the beach. And I was like, Alicia had told me just recently, she gave me a feather necklace, and I was like, I'd been to Voice of Apostles and Charity Cook had given me a word about a feather, and that was the only thing I could remember. Ron wasn't there, so he couldn't remember what else she said. I was like, there's something about the feather, and she, we pray into that, and she had a dream that the Lord gave me another angel for taking back the land. And I've had several confirmations to believe there's still more to be done with that. And I was like, okay, well, that would make it 18. 
And then I happened to look, and back in the corner was the 18th one. So I was like, well, Lord, <laughs> you're so amazing. So, and he's been encouraging me all day. I could just cry. Um, people texted me telling me they're praying for me and calling me, and Teresa came by my house and prayed for me, and I just have felt the love, and I'm just so very thankful for it. And, and okay, so back to when I was in the Outer Banks, and I was feeling his presence, and I could just feel my whole body was with filled with light, and it's like... Any, any striving, any doubt, it's just gone because he's there. Anything unholy, it's just gone because he's, it's like, I think sometimes we try to like jump through 50 hoops. We got to, but when you're in his presence, it's just so simple. It's like, all things are possible. You know, you're just like, yeah. And it's just amazing. And it's not like something he gives to you. He's in you and you're in him. And it's just, ah, so it's just awesome. And then what the Lord showed me is, okay, once you're there in that, and I mean like the place of abiding or rest in your heart, it takes awareness and diligence to stay there. Um, it's my goal. I believe it can be done. In Psalm 62, David's worshiping the Lord, and in verse 4 he says, and he's speaking of his enemies, all of their energies are spent on moving me from this exalted place. And I was like, the Lord would show me that's the strategy. When you're in that place, of course the enemy's going to try to take you out of it because that's where power is. That's where destiny is. That's where everything is. So throughout the day, he's going to do everything he can to slime you, offend you, distract you, tempt you, whatever he can do to get you out of that place, that exalted place. Um, so you have to be aware at all times what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Are you, because once you kind of get off track, it's harder to get back. So the more diligent you are, the easier it is to stay. And one of the ways that he gets me is he will send like thoughts and feelings of low self-esteem, unworthiness, that kind of thing. And the strategy the Lord gave me is in Song of Songs, Jesus says to his beloved, let me tell you how I see you. So that's my personal strategy as I listen to what Jesus has to say. I come into agreement with him, and then when the other thoughts come, you got to repent effective immediately and don't waste time beating yourself up for feeling that way or agreeing with him. And so each person gets attacked a different way, so you have to be aware of what the enemy is trying to get you off track with, and then what's the strategy from God for that? So, abide in me, Jesus said. Without him, you can do nothing, but with him, you can do anything. So, I believe it's the most important lesson that we learn, and one that we have to remember every day. So, when Martha was complaining about Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, he said, leave her alone. She's chosen the most excellent way, and it shall not be taken from her. So, I don't mean sit there all day, <laughs> but... Staying in that place of abiding and resting in him throughout your day and everything you do flowing out of that. Because even Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. So you can have faith to move the mountains, but if you don't have love, it's useless. And Pastor Willie even touched on the things that we do, they can even be good things, but at some point they'll be and the fire, they'll be tested by the fire, and they'll be wood, hay, and stubble unless they're of Jesus. The only thing pure and golden lasting is what you do through him. And we can prophesy and do miracles, but if we're not in relationship with Jesus, he'll say, depart from me, I knew you not. So abiding in him it's vital, crucial importance, and it's why we were created. <laughs> and it's something we have to choose to remember to do every day. So as I was digging deeper into 
the woman with the alabaster jar. So you, everybody should have a handout. And so Luke 7 is going to be the focus tonight, and it's on the first page. And the second page has Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12. So I'm, I wanted you to see them all together so that you could kind of compare the similarities and differences in them. Um, when I was reading different commentaries and everything, I will just say there was considerable debate about some of the points, some of the details in all of these, and so much so that I feel like it's okay for me to say what I believe, knowing that there are people that believe different things on each of these details, and I believe it this way because it's what ministers to my heart and inspires me, and hopefully it will for you too. So one of the things that they differed about was that they thought that all four accounts were of the same event. And I believe it was Luke 7 was a different event than I'll call them the other three. And the reasons I believe that, um, Luke 7 happened in the north in the area of Nain and Capernaum. The other three happened in the south in the area of Bethany. Luke 7 happened at the house of Simon the Pharisee. The other three happened in the house of Simon the leper. <laughs> Luke 7 happened near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Luke 8, it says, Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples along with him, also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And the other three happened near the end of his ministry, around the time of the triumphal entry on the cult, which is Palm Sunday, and sometime near before the Last Supper. And in those accounts, Jesus said, she's preparing my body for burial. So another thing was some people believe that it was three different women, that there's Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman, and Mary of Bethany. Some people believe, too, that Mary Magdalene and the sinful woman are one woman, and Mary of Bethany is the other. And then some people like me believe it was one woman. And one of the reasons they said that it couldn't be one woman was because how can this wonderful Mary worshiping Jesus and preparing him for his burial, how could she have been this sinful woman? <laughs> and I'm like, do they, have they experienced grace the way I've experienced grace? Because <laughs> I know what my life was like. I was... Um, I was in an abusive relationship and was actually about to be murdered, and I'd been dr drawn to Jesus, to God, a, a little bit beforehand, so I called out to God, and he rescued me and saved my life miraculously. It was a supernatural way that he did it, and... Ever since then, I've been completely, totally sold out for the Lord. No looking back, nothing held back. Amen. And for like the first two years or so that I was saved, I literally weep at his feet whenever I was in his presence not just for saving my life physically, but the difference in my life that I felt, the hopelessness and the, the, the abuse and the downtroddenness as opposed to being his daughter and his beloved and having hope and joy and peace. And now I know, like, sitting at his feet is my favorite place to be. You have to practically drag me away from that. And... My love flows out in extravagant worship. So I'm like, yeah, I could see that's the same woman. I think of somebody like Michael Thornton, who freely gives his 
uh, testimony about being addicted to drugs and the things he did while addicted. And now look at him. He's holy. He's pure. He's on fire. He's passionate. William Wood. He, he was addicted to drugs, an alcoholic, almost died, had an encounter with Jesus. And now look at his life. He's on fire for God. So I'm like, <laughs> grace is the point to me. So if we truly understood the significance of this account, we would all be brought to tears and humbled by the Lord's goodness. Because it teaches more than sacrifice and repentance. It teaches love, forgiveness, and real freedom. So genuine repentance receives real forgiveness. Such a wonderful truth. Genuine repentance knows no limits, no boxes, and nothing will hinder that type of worshiper. No fear, no Pharisee, no political correctness will keep such a worshiper from pouring out their love on Jesus. So I believe it wasn't just a spontaneous act of worship that touched Jesus's heart, because when you dig deeper into the culture of the day, it becomes clear that there's a intentional depth of meaning behind each of her actions. And she listened with her heart to Jesus, and she got him in a way that no one else did even as disciples had preconceived notions of what they thought Jesus should or would do. And she truly treated him as Lord. And out of that flowed the beautiful act of worship. So in the other three gospel accounts, Jesus says, leave her alone. What she has done is a beautiful thing to me. And wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has been done will be told in memory of her. In Mark 16, 9, after Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. So this woman that anointed Jesus received deliverance, received forgiveness, experienced true repentance, was thankful, she honored him, followed him, chose the most excellent way, focusing on what matters most, him, sat at his feet, humbling herself and exalting him. She listened with her heart, and she worshiped extravagantly. This is the proper response a person should have after an encounter with Jesus. It was rare, and it was beautiful. <laughs> So if someone could read Luke 7, 36 through 50, please. So this, this is the New King James Version. Then one, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and man, what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing w with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, 
Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but... But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Awesome. Thank you. So we don't know what she did. We just know that she was a sinful woman. So let's take a look at Simon for a moment. And we know that he was a Pharisee, and he was concerned with purity, which is a good thing. But it was more about the outer purity, and we know that Jesus is concerned with inner purity. The feast that Jesus went to was a Sabbath feast, and it was actually in a room, the name meaning the men's room. So it's an all-male gathering. And she comes in, and she's weeping. And the word for weeping in that is breco, and it's a particularly strong word. It actually is used to describe rain showers. <laughs> and so... She was literally cleaning his feet with her tears. And the word for kiss is also very strong, and it means to kiss eagerly, affectionately, and repeatedly. So in that day, in that culture, it was normal to wash people's feet. But they didn't kiss people's feet. That was very rare. Um, there was one reference in the Talmud to a freed murderer kissing the feet of his lawyer when he was overcome with gratefulness to the lawyer for getting him off. Selah, I think she knew that and understood the depths of the forgiveness that she had gotten. So back then, and even some countries now, for a woman to have their hair down, they don't do that. They leave their hair up unless they are in private with their husband. And they even had another saying in the Talmud was that a man may divorce his wife and leave her no financial settlement if she goes out with her hair undone. <laughs> so it was Simon definitely would have taken that as a very impure act. And they believed in impurity by association. You could become impure just by touching something or being near something. So that was one of his concerns. And he, so he starts judging Jesus. And he thinks in his mind, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And this I found really interesting. I'd never heard it before, but it said that the reason that Jesus had the title prophet was in Luke 7, 16 through 7, and talking about raising the widow's son, they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And the reason that they gave him the title prophet was because Elijah had raised a widow's son at Zarephath, just like Elijah. Jesus met the woman at the gate and gave the son back to his mother. Elisha, the prophet, Elijah's disciple, Elisha, also raised a dead son at Shunem, only a mile from Nan. So when Jesus raised the widow of Nan's son, he was deliberately reenacting what those two prophets had done. So what is bothering Simon is that Jesus really isn't doing anything. He's just kind of letting her do all these things. And what happened is Simon put Jesus and the woman in a box. In paganism, you are put in a box because you are defined by your family or your past. And God doesn't think of people in categories but as persons who can change. 
So the biblical view of a person makes grace possible. We're not frozen by our birth status or family. Repentance can happen. So our world is actually returning to paganism by giving people fixed descriptions. So the labels initially seduce us with understanding and identity, but as soon as you take it on, you're trapped, narrowly defined by that label. So William Wood says, Satan speaks to your history because he wants you to stay stuck. Jesus speaks to your destiny, who you are in him by his grace. He pulls you up into your identity, into your original design to see yourself the way he purposely created you in your originality. And all we have to do is agree with him. So grace is designed to wage war against anything that doesn't look like Jesus in your life. It's an attack against everything that will hinder your destiny. So that's what grace is. So, oh, I'm close. I was going to ask this a question, but I guess you can think, because I don't think we have time to do the answers. Um, but... So Jesus isn't doing anything. He's just kind of letting her weep and kiss him and do all these things. And a lot of times in the Bible and in our lives, Jesus seems he's not there. He's not doing anything. And he's silent. So why do you think Jesus does that? And he does that so that we will have to reach out to him that we'll have to come alive in some way and grow because he's hidden and see him better and get closer to him. John 11:14 and 15 says, Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So secular liberalism... <laughs> Secular liberalism tries to be the person of Jesus without Jesus. Without Jesus' atonement, which is the cross, without Jesus' presence, which is the Holy Spirit, and without Jesus' body, which is the church, and it always fails. It ends up creating a law out of compassion that's actually used to marginalize people, and that's what political correctness is. You can't do Jesus without Jesus. <laughs> So this actually was sent to me by Teresa Maples, and it's from a book called The God Chasers by Tommy Tenney. And it was talking about when she comes in and she's, she knows that for Simon to not have his, one of his servants watch Jesus' feet, to not kiss him, to not have oil on his head, it's a deliberate public put down. He's dishonoring Jesus, and it's extremely obvious, especially because in a Pharisee's house, they're really concerned with outer purity. So she knows this, and as she's cleaning his feet with her tears, literally doing that, and then as she's doing that, she realizes she doesn't have a towel. So I guess she could ask for a towel. So she undoes her hair and wipes his feet with her hair. And the Bible says that a woman's hair is her glory. So this is what it says from Tommy Tenney. What a picture of humble worship Mary provides. She dismantled her glory, her hair, to wipe. And sometimes it, they could have animal waste on their feet because their feet got dirty animal waste from his feet. Our righteousness and glory are nothing but filthy rags fit to wipe his feet. She took the disdain and public disrespect of that household away from him and took it upon herself. She removed every as evidence of his public rejection with her beautiful hair and took it as her own. Can you imagine what that did for the heart of God? Jesus gave us insight into his feelings. 
when he publicly and openly rebukes his host. So he points out what Simon's failure was, and then he says what the woman did. But not only what she did, she surpasses what he does. So Simon, you gave my feet no water. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't kiss me. She kissed my feet and hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. Simon, you didn't anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with costly ointment. So the, the scholar Kenneth Bailey says, the great unrepentant sinner whose presence defiled is Simon, not the woman. The prophet Jesus has not only read the woman's heart, he's read Simon's heart. The judge Simon becomes the accused. And what Jesus is doing for the woman, he's empowering her, defending her, and exalting her. So do you think that Jesus was bothered by Simon's rudeness? And is it wrong to be bothered when someone treats you rudely? I was going to ask this question too, but we don't have enough time. And at first we might say, oh no, we're not supposed to be bothered. But why would Jesus openly rebuke Simon and others in the Bible? So being bothered by sin is simply God's justice in us recoiling from evil. God's image in us reacting to sin. What is important to remember is not to react in the flesh, but to pray and respond with Holy Spirit's leading. So the law and grace work together. And that could actually be someone's breakthrough. So it's refreshing the way that Jesus treats Simon. He tells him the truth. It's what Simon needed to hear. He gave grace to the woman, and that's what she needed. So that's one reason we need the Holy Spirit and to be so in tune with Him, because He knows what people need to hear, even when we don't. So our, our modern culture has actually secularized grace. So that is, they've removed God from grace. They've taken the fruit of Christianity and thrown away the heart. So when grace becomes secularized, it becomes a law or a demand. We must extend grace, even to the extent that adultery, sin, sexual sin isn't wrong. So being able to not compromise and still extend love and grace and value to the person can only be done by Holy Spirit. And that's very important nowadays. So I felt like that's a really big point that the Lord wanted us to remember that um, we can't try to figure it out. Only God can do it, and only us being so in close in tune with Him. Um, he knows when people need truth and when they need grace and when they need to be just loved with it, where they're at and when they're ready to, to receive Jesus in their heart. And our country actually is in a crisis right now spiritually. Um, I think our children specifically are being attacked in many ways, and the only way that we're going to get out of, it's actually, I believe it's like a box that we've been put in, Satan putting us in a box, and little by little, making them smaller and smaller. And the only way that we're going to get out of, break open that box is through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. Um, I truly believe that God's heart for America, for children, and the world will be fulfilled, but we have to partner with him and do it when and how he wants to do. So one of the themes of this is breaking boxes. So breaking open your own heart, breaking out of the box and limits we sit on ourselves, letting God out of the box of tradition so Holy Spirit can have his way, and breaking the box of fear of man. I think it's very important. So, let me see. Oh, 
So Jesus closes with this blessing, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So that's what Jesus would say when he healed someone. So this is like a healing miracle, only it was with her soul and her social standing. He didn't say, your love has saved you, because the whole point is not our doing. It's not our obedience that saves us. What saves us is our brokenness. And faith is when you have a huge view of your sin, but an equally big picture of a forgiving God. And shalom is the word behind peace, and it means more than not fighting. It means a community characterized by peace, prosperity, unity, and love, and it's like peace of heaven on earth. And that's what Jesus gave to the woman and to the men in this community mealtime. He gave them shalom. So Jesus... It brings justice to the weak, and he empowers the downtrodden outsiders. Um, I had a dream recently, I think it was like within the last month or so, where I had like really long hair, and it was touching the ground and following behind me like a veil, and I saw the word or the letters F-O-R-G-O-S, and heard the word friend. And then, let's see, it's in here. Long hair, or hair in the Bible, means consecrated unto God. And F-O-R-G-O-S is forgoes. So if we forego the world in favor of having a friendship with God. And I think that's what one of the things that God is calling us to is to be in that friendship relationship with the Lord. And the next day, Bill Johnson had sent a thing about being a friend of God. I was going to read it, but I don't think I have enough time now. But it's, it's just saying that we've gone from being servants, we're promoted to being friends. And Friends aren't so worried about disobeying as much as they are about disappointing because they do it out of love. And I definitely believe that God is calling our body to that um, special place of friendship. This, Actually, it was yesterday morning I was praying, and the Lord gave me a word for some people for next week, for next Wednesday, we're going to have a time of ministry, and it's, I believe, going to bring healing to people's hearts. And next week is going to be very different. Uh, when the Lord gave me a vision to it, I don't think I've seen a Wednesday night that's going to be like this, so it's going to be out of the box. <laughs> and uh, um, he also, yesterday morning, gave me a word for, a prophetic word for Global River Church. And I'm, like, really excited. And he wants me to release it. I have an alabaster jar that's actual alabaster jar from Jerusalem with actual oil of spikenard from Jerusalem. And going to do an anointing and release the word. We're going to have prophetic art. We're going to have bridal worship. We're going to have impartation and anointing. So it's going to be very unique and very special. And I feel like it's the Lord is preparing us for this next move that we're getting ready to be in. He wants us to be ministering to him because <laughs> It's not just a visitation. It's going to be a habitation. And we need to learn how to minister to him. So it's very exciting. And um, I just, I'll just pray. I just thank you, Lord, for what you're doing on earth right now, for who you're calling us to be. It's amazing that you've called us to be your friend. We want to be those that have their lamps filled with oil. We want to go deeper with you. And we thank you, Lord, that you're taking us on the ultimate quest. So I want to end with this ultimate quest. And this is actually from 
Bill Johnson's face-to-face -face devotional. So the blessing God assigned to Israel was the declaration of the favor of his face. Thus, it is through Israel that the rest of humanity has been invited into this ultimate quest. When we go deeper, we find that the history of Israel calls us to this quest by revealing the fact that God himself is on a quest. The quest for our faces, as it were. He's on a quest to restore the face-to-face -face intimacy with his children that was lost through sin. Perceiving God's pursuit of us through scripture is a vital ingredient in helping us come to the place where we can understand and become possessed by the impulse to pursue him in the same way he has pursued us with complete abandonment. Those who embrace the ultimate quest are simply those who have correctly perceived and responded to his invitation for a restored relationship. So, thank you. <laughs> All I can say is, wow. How many of you got choked up at some point in the session? At least three times. I, I just, uh, we need you women to teach us. I'm serious. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm being transparent right now. Um, you know, we can, you know, it's the big bad guys, you know, it's Pastor Willie and Bishop and, and you know, we, and, and certainly that's a role. But there's a part of this that we can't unpack unless you lead us there. And so... I was really grateful. Um, yeah, so let's uh, let's just stand and uh, God, I thank you for all the gifts. It says when every joint is supplying, the body is well. And so, God, I just thank you. Um, I know there was a time Mary Esther and Ron could have left here and offended, and I probably would have. <laughs> and they stayed in the fight, and then there was times that she wouldn't even uh, think about getting up. And, and now look, God, I thank you. I, there's, those gifts are everywhere in this body. And so, Lord, I just pray we want to invite um, all of that to come forward, to be released as we move into this place, a, a greater and greater revelation of of your goodness and your love for us. And so, Lord, I thank you that um, I ask for real divine encounters, dreams or revelation, quiet times. It will be that diligent and disciplined to set aside the time and just wait on the Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that you loved us. There's no one here that has uh, anything to, to brag about. It's all about your grace. And so we're so thankful, Lord. I just lift up all the needs in the body. You know those that are struggling, the, the family situations, those that are sick, laid aside. Lord, I pray for the weekend that for Brian Starley and Camden Starley, Lord, that they're going to come and they're going to bring something. I ask that you would protect their lives right now, that you would guide them and deliver them, show them, see, let them see what you have for this body, their, their prophetic people. Lord, they've given their lives over to you. And so, Lord, I pray. I pray for Neil Blake, the tent, the setting up of the tent Saturday that, God, I don't know where this is all going. Um, but we don't need to. <laughs> you just said, trust me, and, and that's enough. And, and so, Lord, you can lean any way you want on us, and we'll not lean on our understanding. And then the pathway will be enlightened, and that you'll bring about your presence in, in special ways. So I thank you, Father, for all those tonight listening by live stream. And uh, um, Megan, are you here? Yeah, Megan's here. Can you... Testimony. This woman's a walking testimony. There's several here. Uh, John is as well. But um, so most of you are probably aware. I went to Atlanta and I had major surgery. Um, they ended up doing way more than they anticipated on doing. Surgery went from lasting three hours to six hours, um, which was mind blowing to my mom. <laughs> but Anyways, um, after a chest tube being placed, they went in through my diaphragm. Um, the testimony that I have is they found something on my diaphragm that was not only a concern for endometriosis, but it was also a concern for the C word. 
that I'm not going to say because I know that the Lord says so much more than that. Um, but my biopsy results and all of my pathology came back and there was no cancer on the diaphragm. Um, but the craziest thing that I experienced through the entire process of everything was, I mean, obviously, you know, getting on an airplane for the first time, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> um, but my surgeon came in my pre-op room as they were getting me ready for surgery, and I was super anxious. I don't do well with anesthesia normally. I have a really hard time with anesthesia, and I was just really anxious. And my surgeon came over, and he laid hands on me, and him and his entire team prayed over me, prayed for the surgery, prayed for the whole process. And then when I got to the OR, and yes, at this point, I was a little loopy, not going to lie, they prayed and held my hand while I went to sleep. But the biggest part of the entire situation was my surgeon, I'm like hot right now. Um, my surgeon was able to remove every ounce of endometriosis from my entire body and stated that there is endometriosis. I'm going to tell you guys, there's no cure and it is awful. It's an awful disease. But he said that there is only, even though they say that it always comes back, he said there's only a 1% chance that it would, and he said that he prayed prior to the surgery, and the Lord told him that it was not coming back. So I'm just saying, I don't know about you guys, but if that's not a faith booster, I don't know what would be. Um, but he also discovered that that was the problem with my bowels prior to surgery. And they are all clean and open and functioning completely normally. Hopefully that's not too much information. <laughs> but anyways, I'm just being transparent here. <laughs> I mean, it's a bodily function. We all do it. <laughs> I guess we can praise the Lord on that note. Right? <laughs> God bless you all. Thank you for being here. Have a great night, everybody. We'll see you next Wednesday. I'm now excited about next Wednesday. So don't forget, Saturday morning, if you can be available... Please be available.